Hey, welcome to High Resolution. My name is Bobby Goshal. And I'm Jared Aranda. We are sitting down with a superstar today, an amazing master of design. Who are we speaking to? We're speaking with Rich Fulcher. He leads up Material Design UX and Engineering here at Google. He's going to tell us how they actually built Material Design, how you can build your own design system today, and why designing your culture is just as important. Hey, before we cut away to break, if you haven't yet left us a review on your favorite podcasting app, if you haven't commented on YouTube or on Facebook, you know, we cover a lot of ground in these episodes. And Rich is going to go deep on some serious stuff, stuff that you can bring to your company. So if you have follow-up questions, the best thing you can do, go on to Twitter, tweet us, or tweet Rich. Mm -hmm. Go on to YouTube, leave us a comment, ask us the question, but really, ask Rich the question. He'll respond. He's here to help you guys. How many times do you get help from people like him? Probably not too many. I know I don't, so I'm, I feel pretty lucky. Same. Cool. We'll be right back. For decades, design has impacted how we live. Now it's beginning to shape how we work. Here at IBM, design thinking has given us a new framework for teaming, for co-creating with our clients and users. It's helping us make decisions faster, and it's keeping humans at the center of everything we do. Rich, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So first question, what's one thing about design that's clear to you that you don't think is so clear to other people? Um, I think design is a lot bigger than a lot of people give it credit for. Um, you know, we think about a really specific form of design when we think about kind of UX design. You know, we think about building these digital products or we think about graphic design and layout and kind of aspects like that. Maybe we think about motion design. Um, but even as you start to move like a little bit further as to what we touch, you, know, you might touch packaging, industrial design. Um, but there's actually you know, many, many different forms of design that are out there. Uh, and I think some of the best teams that I've worked with draw in you know, influences from you know, very different schools of, of design. Um, you know, some of the best motion graphics people I've worked with didn't start on anything resembling you know, interface design. Uh, they came from TV, where they were, you know, cranking out bottom thirds and chirons, you know, on a daily basis on kind of insane schedules. Um, but if they have kind of the interest and the kind of fluency to think about users, uh, they can find a really interesting home here. And I think people design processes. They, you know, uh, we'll talk about systems a bit a bit today. Um, there's a lot of different modes of design uh, that all connect together. A few years ago, when when Larry Page came back as as CEO, one of the first big mandates that he gave Google is yeah. or was to make Google beautiful, right? Um, mm -hmm. Which was this big bold statement, almost like a mission. Um, what did the designers rally behind? What was the first thing you guys did after that? Because that's like I, how, Google is like a multi-thousand person company. Where do you start with so many products and all that? Where do you start? Yeah. Um, well, first you start from excitement. Like you, you hear a message like that coming yeah. from you know that high up an executive. You're like, we're on it. Like this is what we want to do. This is what we came here to do. Yeah. Um, so you, you first like have that great moment of like, okay, it's it's game time for us. Like yeah. we've we've got the the opportunity to kind of really do something interesting here. Um, and you know having that kind of endorsement from from the top makes kind of a lot of the kind of day-to-day -day negotiation with, with your peers outside your function a, a little bit more easy because uh, you can kind of refer back to that and you can be like, you know, Larry said, you mm -hmm. know, right. you, had the, you had the permission. Remember, <laughs> uh, yeah, the, more than the permission, actually, like the, the mandate, right? The mandate, you go yeah. and do this. Um, so then you, you, you look at the products that you have and you think about, I think each designer kind of looked at, at the, the, the scope of what they were responsible for uh, and tried to think about, okay, how did, where can I start to infuse more of this? Or where can I think about what some of the, the opportunities would be? I think Google's always had this really good uh, connection to utility. That's, you know, it's right there in the mission statement. You, we're organizing all the world's information to make it universally accessible and useful. Uh, so the useful's right there. Um, but we hadn't had a lot of focus um, kind of publicly around kind of just I, I think the, the kind of beauty that we had a, a, a reputation for was this very kind of simple beauty of just like, okay, it's just very minimal. It's kind of the pristine page with a single box. Um, but that 
kind of challenge gave us a little opportunity to think about it in, in, in other ways as well and to think about other notions of how we could inject kind of beauty and, and liveliness uh, into the experiences that we were making. So one of the things that came about after Larry's very broad mandate um, was material design, right? And material design is awesome. Like I remember watching it when you guys shifted and going through the documentation. It was very extensive and very thought through. Um, but I imagine that when it started, um, that is not exactly what you guys saw the end outcome being, right? So I want you to take us back to those early conversations um, and what spurred this. Was it a reaction to a problem that you saw with your own design system? Was it a proactive move? Yeah, yeah. I, more than anything, I, I think it was the fact that there wasn't a single design system across Google at that point. You know, I was on Android at the time, so we had uh, the Hollow design system was the design language we were using within Android. Um, but that wasn't what our web properties were using. It wasn't what our iOS products were using. Um, so a few design teams um, saw the opportunity to be, well, you know, maybe there's a way that instead of kind of diverging, we can actually converge here and come up with something that's more harmonious across uh, a number of different platforms. Um, so like a lot of great things that come out of Google, it starts with a design sprint. You get a couple of people together from different teams. They throw a bunch, you know, they lock themselves in a room or set of rooms for a week and they just brainstorm. They just come up with ideas. They pursue directions that maybe can't ever happen. Uh, and they just you know, see what comes of it. Um, you know, there was a clear focus. It was, well, what would a single kind of language that could speak for all of these different Google experiences look like? Um, so that's where we started. Um, and in fact, like that work kind of happened before we had kind of this, this goal of kind of unifying it. But we were able to take some of that work um, and kind of, kind of uh, slowly get it seen by more people in the company and say, well, you know, what about this direction? Or... You know, we, we're kind of interested in this, and this might be a way that we can kind of work forward for Android and maybe work forward for, for other teams as well. Um, so from that level, it kind of started a little bit grounds up, um, but then we kind of you know, escalated it and then kind of turned it into something that was a, well, yes, we actually need this language, a single unified design language that works across Google and all of its properties. So go and figure out what that's going to look like for us. And... If you can achieve that, um, then we'll get the, all the other product teams to kind of line up and, yeah. and, and execute on that. Yeah, but yeah. what did that research phase look like? Right. Because we're talking about Google, right? Like <laughs> yeah. there's a Wikipedia page called Google Products that is basically <laughs> infinitely scrollable, right? Yeah. Um, it's yeah. not like you have two or three apps and it's like, okay, like make our website look like our iPhone app, right. which, you know, like it's make Google look like one thing, right? So how did you guys go about researching all these service areas <laughs> to come, come up with this common language? So you can't, you can't possibly do it all at once. Um, so we definitely tried to kind of look at as broad a sample as we could. Um, and, but at some point, you have to distill to something a, a little bit simpler to start from. So you, you go to kind of the core kind of consumer-facing products. You, you, you kind of turn it to what, what's the user's lens. Because, uh, you know, what's the kind of typical user, what do they see? Do they see search maps, Gmail, uh, calendar, you know, et cetera? Um, and start from that core. Um, because those are the ones that, you know, honestly, also, they'll also be some of the most political ones because the ones most tightly associated with the brand or they have the brand is right there in the name for many of them. Um, and you start kind of building from that space. Uh, you ask, like, what it was like. It was messy. It's, it's messy as anything at that stage. Um, but... I think every beautiful thing I've been a part of starts messy. It doesn't kind of, it's not a straight line from like, you know, this instant to uh, complete perfection. Um, there's a ton of exploration that happens in there. Some of that stuff, you just like, it gets crumpled up and thrown and you never uncrumple that piece of paper. Other stuff, um, sometimes it comes back. Uh, after we launched Material, you know, we did um, some of the rebrand work around like what the Google logo looks like. Um, some of the ideas from that original work were brought out again and kind of formed uh, a good launching point for that new work as well. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely not a linear process. Um, you wind up talking to a lot of people uh, along the way, which is great because you're not trying to just kind of solve it in isolation and then tell everyone, okay, this is the thing we're all going to do. Um, you want to make sure that as you're kind of crafting it, you're getting the sense of, Okay, is this actually going to work 
for this product? Would it work for this product? And you can kind of go gradually wider and wider and wider um, until you reach the point where you, you feel a little bit confident enough to take that next big leap to, to trying to get, get to everyone. I like the, the, the metaphor of getting material design, which is a, dis, a digital design system to mimic the real world. So it feels pretty familiar. But um, that didn't happen in one design sprint in one week. There's no way. I, it's not, like, right, it did it's it? Like, actually, it took two days. No, <laughs> no, so, no, it didn't. I mean, obviously, it wasn't completely realized yeah. in that way. But I will say that like one of the first concepts in that you know, first week sprint that I referred back to yeah. was about, well, what if it were more of this kind of realistically lit photographic environment mm-hmm. where, where we're using kind of surface elevation and shadow to be the basis for how different um, areas of, of content within the interface were, were housed. Um, so that idea actually did go, that's like the germ of that idea. You know, that didn't account for, well, how does that relate to motion? How does that relate to like the user's touch? It was more of just like, that's just how we might set a scene. Um, but that kind of key idea was, yeah. was present pretty early on. What were the other crazy ideas that you guys didn't go with? Because that wasn't the first idea. Um, there were definitely things I love that, that are making all these assumptions that it wasn't the first idea. It might have been, but there's, I mean, you know. No, no, there were, um, there were a few others. There were, um, you know, some that were like a more amplified version of like the, the hollow pattern. Yeah. So kind of like, you know, hollow plus plus kind of thinking. Um, there was stuff that was incredibly flat mm. that was just like, okay. Um, and like, like that, some aspects of that actually saw their way through. So there, was, there were early models that were like, okay, so everything's flat and there's big blocks of color. We'll use color blocking as like a core set of the identity for this language. We didn't kind of en- end up with a flat design system, but bold use of color and kind of drawing from kind of classic graphic design and um, you know, type hierarchy uh, as a way of expressing kind of structure within a view. Those are particulars that we did pick up on. Where did the material name come from? The material name came really late uh, in, the, in the process. Uh, so um, we had been using an internal code name for probably at least a year at that point, which was quantum, quantum paper was the, the idea. So the, the notions of paper and ink came fairly early and became something that we kind of talked a lot about within the team. Uh, and it became an important aspect of how we would try to communicate the design system to other people that weren't on the immediate team. Um, and the notion of quantum as an adjective for paper is, okay, it's not boring standard paper. Like it can, it can scale, it can move, it can split, it can magically heal, it can do all of these things. So it's kind of super juiced paper. <laughs> um, and as we were nearing launch, we were probably about I want to say like four to six weeks away from the reveal at I.O. So it was, it was pretty close. Um, we um, were kind of looking back at the name. We were trying to think about, okay, well, we liked that name, but we didn't know if it was going to be the right kind of go-to-market name for it. Um, and we didn't really know if we wanted to like market it as a name. Like we kind of thought we'd come up with something that's both like a specific design language and just a way of thinking about design. I don't want to say a school of design. That sounds like too... Um, overstating what it is. But it is a kind of set of principles like skeuomorphic might be. Sure. Um, so it's more kind of describing that type of design system, we thought. Um, so we wound up um, kind of thinking about it. We liked paper. We liked that idea. Um, but we also didn't want to kind of close off other possibilities for other things that could exist within that system. So paper is a material. You know, what if the system had you know, acrylic or glass or kind of different types of, of structures that could exist within it. So we were able to broaden it a little bit to material, which felt good. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, it was a hard transition. We had like a, we actually had a swear jar <laughs> in the office for people that would say quantum because we had to like <laughs> completely retrain ourselves yeah. in just a matter of weeks before we started talking about this That's at I.O. Hilarious. So it was like every time you said quantum. Yeah. <laughs> the, the moment the germ of the, the material design um, method, not really method, but like the, the language started to build internally on the design team. Yeah. Um, how did you guys decide to f- first present it to Larry and his team? Like what were, what did you show them? Um, so we showed them um, a, a fairly short video of just because motion is a key part of the system. So we wanted to show like at a 
somewhat removed from the specifics of the interface, you know, how do we, what do we think the feel sure. of the system would be? Um, and that animation was an important part, so we wanted to kind of put that story first. Um, and you see, like, that video evolved into something that became, like, the reveal video at, at I.O. Which as well. Which was awesome. Thank you. A lot of hard work from uh, <laughs> yeah. people on our team on that one. <laughs> yeah. um, and then we, we, wanted to, we went back to, let's show it in the context of products. You know, so the, the language, any design system, really doesn't exist outside of the products that make use of it. You know, it's, it's, it's this platform, it's this invisible layer that only becomes realized when someone adopts it and turns it into an experience that actually meets a specific goal. Um, so that's the kind of story we want to build up. You know, what if you know, Gmail were, could look like this and Calendar could look, look, like, look like this and it would be here on iOS and here on Android and here on desktop. Um, and that's kind of the, the core of the narrative that we put together from what, that pitch. What was his first reaction when, when he saw it? Um, it went very well. <laughs> Um, so, um, I mean, there's always comments, um, but um, it was a very much immediately the, you, you've got the charter, go, go and make this happen. How is the uh, material design team set up and like what responsibilities do each have? Yeah, so right now um, the team is set up uh, into basically four sub-teams that we call initiatives. Um, so. Uh, each of those initiative teams uh, is a cross-functional team. So it's engineering, uh, it's UX, which covers for us interaction, visual, motion design. Uh, UX writing uh, is really important to us, and communication is a huge part of, of what we do at the system level. Uh, and then we have kind of uh, program managers, design producers, uh, or sometimes now. Um, and each of those teams has kind of a, a particular a set of responsibilities. So one is focused on like just the core of the design system itself. There's another that's focused on all of our kind of advocacy and outreach efforts uh, in terms of like how do we actually get out and just engage the design community even if it isn't about material specifically. Uh, so when you see things like our uh, SPAN design conferences that is an offshoot of that and our Google design uh, site is, is from there as well. Uh, and then we have uh, a team that's focused on kind of of tooling, and some of that is like the spec and the guidelines and some of the supporting tools that go with that. Uh, and then we have a team that's all about just managing the Google ecosystem and managing all those product uh, relationships uh, that we have internally. Mm -hmm. um, so just kind of being the, the easy points of connection for any team, uh, managing launch and release processes that are related to UX, things like that. Have you guys thought about how um, in a world where material design is meant for the screen, and increasingly the products that Google's releasing with Google Home, et cetera, uh, don't have a screen. How does material design and its language fit into that world without an inter... With, well, I guess you, a vo voice is an interface, but without a visual interface that you can touch, how does material fit into that? Yeah, um, it's, it is not a question we have fully answered. Uh, so the, the beautiful thing is, you know, we get to work with teams that are kind of building out these design systems. So whether it's you know, the voice team or um, like the VR team, the Daydream group, um, like they're having to solve problems that we didn't have to solve. Like we had to think about very particular modes of interaction that were available. Um, and even when we did like something like, like Wear or something like, you know, uh, Android TV, they're still fairly familiar, you know, kind of mapping a four-way control to a mouse um, isn't that hard. If there's obviously like very platform-specific needs you have to keep in mind, but it's not a radically new input modality. Voices, uh, VR, and kind of the input mechanisms tied to that certainly are as well. Um, so we take the approach of like, we work with the teams that are experts in those domains. Um, so we partner through that ecosystems group um, with um, teams that are focusing on those areas, we try to see, okay, are there things about material that maybe are useful for them? Um, and in some cases there are. The more the visual component it has, the, the more there is that we can do there. Um, but if not, are there kind of philosophical ideas that still kind of connect across the design systems? Um, you know, for instance, we have something like um, the floating action button. It's kind of this hallmark um, uh, control within material design. And that's the idea of, I mean, it is still just a button, right? It's, it's round, it has an icon on it, and it's lifted, and it floats over content, but it's still 
a button that you press. But the kind of interesting thing about the fab is it's saying, well, what's the one most important action in this context that we want to highlight for the user? Like, distill it down. What's the one? And there are ways that you could think about that in those other contexts, even if it's not depicted as a button. It's like, what is that one most natural uh, gesture I'm going to make or that utterance I'm going to make to kind of a, to a voice system? So we're looking for ways that we can take some of that thinking, even if it isn't like especially visual, uh, and thread it through. And for teams who are willing or ready to invest in creating their own design system, right? Um, what are some principles that they should keep in mind coming in, and where should they actually start? Sure. Um, I think the first thing is you know make sure you're clear on why you want your design system. Um, you know, I think it may not make that much sense for kind of very small teams or very fast-moving teams to do it. Um, the the impetus to build a design system is usually I want to get kind of this knowledge out of a designer's mind so that someone else can take it and use it to build something new. Um, so, but if you are at that point and you're, you've decided, yeah, either I have like external partners that I need to serve that need to be able to understand like what the structure that we're building is, uh, or you've hit that kind of point of scale where that makes sense, um, you have to recognize that it is not like a I write it and it's done kind of effort. Yeah. Um, it's definitely something that needs ongoing support. And the writing down part is actually like really important. And it, it kind of hurts, right? Because like we've we've gotten to the point where like if you were practicing design like a decade ago, you're like, oh okay, detailed specs, I remember these. I've got all the red <laughs> lines and I've got a word doc and here's my table. And then we were kind of in this wonderful age of like close collaboration and prototyping and all of that where it's like, no, I'm just going to you know, one-on-one work really closely either with myself or the, the engineering team where we're just going to work this out and it's not you know, throw the spec. It's not like create this stupid like artifact that's like, I don't know, I think people look at written specs and they're like, mm. this is like stone tools for dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah. But for design systems, um, if you don't write it down, if it's still like captured up in the head of the designer and not externalized in some form, then you haven't really captured the system yet. Um, you, your goal is to create something that lives independent of the people that created it that can be taken like almost as if there's like a wall where like you don't get access to the people that made it anymore. Mm. How, what do you need to capture so that anyone can take it and build with the un all the understanding they need to kind of effectively translate that system. Mm -hmm. And that's obviously like an incredibly lofty goal that like we're still aspiring towards. Um, but I think that is the goal, especially when you're trying to kind of adopt at scale, yeah. where I can't have the pleasure of like sitting down and talking to everyone who's building a material design app. Right. Like they, their understanding is going to come from reading our guidelines and you know, watching our I.O. videos and looking at how other people have realized it. That last one's a little dangerous because it comes this echo chamber of, well, here's how somebody interpreted this doc, right. and I'm just going to kind of keep feeding into their understanding of it as well. Um, so kind of making sure you're ready to nurture it, making sure that you're willing to like write it down. And, and write it down doesn't just mean text. Like it's, it's the videos, it's all the visual examples. Uh, examples are really important, uh, showing not just the rule but or the guideline, but how does it apply in, in context? Um, how does it get used? Um, Counterexamples are really important, um, just like with any kind of brand style guide, just like not this way, not this way. Uh, those can be, they can be so expedient compared to trying to specify all of the rules. Sometimes the counterexample is just the best way. So getting a little um, tactical here, are there levels to a design system? Um, I'm thinking through the lens of you know a small team or a fast-moving team who at least wants to make some investment in consistency, right? Like, what is level one or level two that they can actually actuate today? Yeah, I think there are levels. I think that's a good way to say it. Um, I think the simplest are kind of shared resources, right? So here's the sticker sheet of all the common components that we use within our system. Like, here's our standard size button. Here's kind of the type of corner round that we're going to use. Um, and that's kind of 
You can do that visually. You can do it for interaction. You can do it for motion. Here's our standard kind of two-point motion curve. Here's our in and out that we usually do. You can do it for writing. Here's our, our usage, our common, kind of common word list and glossary. Uh, here's just how we kind of land when it, with respect to certain forms of phrasing. Um, and I think that's where most design systems begin. You know, people want to kind of come to some agreement. Um, we have a lot of tools that are great for like collaborative authoring now. So it's like a bunch of people get thrown into a doc, put their ideas down. Um, they start building out repositories of sticker sheets or icons is another kind of common element that gets passed around. Um, and people, I think, just get tired of like having to ping someone and say, can you send me the icon for X? And they, they want to create something that's more of a central resource. Um, it can also happen when people transition off a project. So maybe so, you know, someone's moving off of something, moving on to something new, and they want to wrap up a nice package for you know, whoever's filling in to take their place. Um, so I think that's the start. I think a step above that is um, actually coming to like a very firm consensus that, okay, this is what we want. And um, starting to do the, the cycle back to see, okay, are we actually employing this through all of our products? Is it actually being applied consistently? Um, and just kind of walking through to that and just kind of trying to kind of nudge projects closer and closer to, to consistency. And then I think the, the further steps are about just kind of refining that, that documentation. How do you capture it? What kind of tools do you build to support that? And where do you go from there? So we're going to keep talking about design systems when we come back and how important they are. Uh, but before we go to break, I'm actually very curious. When not every designer at Google, and you guys have a lot of designers at Google, were able to inform material design. So when this thing was revealed to the world, uh, what was the reaction from the internal designers? And did they feel like... They weren't authors in this, and you know, like, what the heck? Now I've got this rigid system that I got to work with, or, or were they just like, cool about it? <laughs> well, the good news is that wasn't the first they heard of it. So, um, you know, we have um, we have this great practice at at Google of having it's called the TGIF. It's on Thursdays. Don't ask. <laughs> um, but we had the chance to kind of go before the whole company, um, kind of you know, months before uh, we've revealed the IO to say. Okay, here's the thing. Here's the thing that's coming. Yeah. We're really excited about it. Here's why we think you should be excited about it. Um, now, at that point, I'll try to answer your question because it's still it's yeah. an interesting one. Um, yeah, we hadn't talked to every team at that point. And um, what we had tried to do was talk to at least as many teams as we could. We would try to kind of work through the UX community um, so that at least like from the design side, there was good awareness of kind of what was coming and what we were tracking towards. Um, but it definitely freaks people out. Uh, you know, change uh, depends a lot on where any given team is like at that instant. Uh, to kind of offer this kind of hopeful opportunity of material design to a team that's been like just champing at the bit to uh, like do a redesign for their product, yeah. like they're excited. They're like, okay, this is it. This is yeah. the golden opportunity. I can go and yeah. we can do everything we've always wanted to do. Mm. Uh, but if you come to another team that just completed their redesign, Oof. Uh, it's, it's a bitter pill. Painful, yeah. Yeah, and um, so we definitely took the approach of um, you know, not trying to get everybody to cut over it at the same instant. You, know, you talked about the you know, hundreds of products that we have that probably would have been, been impossible anyway. Um, but we just kind of wanted to make it clear, like, this is the direction we're going. Here's what we've got figured out. For the rest of it, we want, we want to collaborate. This, can, this only happens if it's this kind of coalition of, of the willing Interesting. that come together. So, so, so the approach you took was not to say, you know, this is approved from the top. This needs to happen across the company on this timeline. It was, what do you think? And, and let's all work together to, to move in this direction. We definitely had like a, a timeline. And sure. so um, um, for, in some cases, for like particular platforms. So like Android was something we were going to push like really hard on because yeah. um, that was kind of going to be a first realization of that system. Um, but we, we, we just couldn't in other cases. Like, you know, we work to define this kind of core system, but then we go to a team um, and maybe we go to something like, um, you know, AdWords. Yeah. Um, and they have a set of components and a set of use cases that aren't the standard ones, yeah. but are utterly essential for their users and for their product. And we can't tell them, you know, here's what you're going to do. Right. 
we kind of very kind of uh, politely go and be like, we know we haven't answered everything that you're going to need. Um, but here's the basis. Here's the principles. Yeah. Let's work together to figure out how this applies to your particular set of needs. For decades, design has impacted how we live. Now it's beginning to shape how we work. Here at IBM, design thinking has given us a new framework for teaming, for co-creating with our clients and users. It's helping us make decisions faster. And it's keeping humans at the center of everything we do. Of course, we're inspired by our design program, which is over 60 years old. But today, IBM employs more than 1,300 professional designers, and we've certified more than 60,000 IBMers in the practices of IBM design thinking. The result? Diverse teams working more closely than ever with our clients, their users, and our partners to create modern solutions that provide differentiated, human-centered outcomes to the world. We'd love to share this story more closely with you. And I hope to see you soon at one of our IBM studios worldwide. We'd also like to thank our friends at Envision for their support. Envision is the world's leading product design platform, powering the future of digital design through their understanding of the importance of collaboration. They're used by some of the most innovative companies in the world, like Facebook, Capital One, Netflix, and Airbnb. I work with remote teams all the time, and I found that keeping a healthy dialogue is really important. Without it, building strong work relationships gets a lot harder, and that leads to poor collaboration. I've also found that prototypes are a great way for me to show my full vision for a design, and this helps cut down a lot of back and forth. Envision makes all of this really easy. You can rapidly prototype your designs and collaborate across every stage of your project, taking your ideas from concept to code. It simplifies virtually every aspect of the design workflow and makes collaboration a core part of the process for everyone, from project managers to designers, developers, and writers. Teams that build digital products are at a serious advantage when they use Envision's suite of prototyping and collaboration tools. It's the best way to get everyone on board. Visit envisionapp.com slash high resolution for three months free. So building a design system takes a lot of time and energy, right? Um, so thinking through the lens now of a more mature company or team, design team, who's ready to invest in this, it may be a little bit difficult to pitch it to stakeholders, right? Because from the perspective of a non-designer, what it looks like you're asking for is time to stop working on product <laughs> and features and to start creating a system that they themselves are not actually going to use, right? Um, so what are some things that people can keep in mind, design teams can keep in mind, when they're actually pitching this to stakeholders? What value are they saying that they're actually going to create for the business? Yeah, um, I think there's a few. Um, one is that you can kind of think about it as um, we're trying to remove risk from the design system. Um, and I mean that in the sense of like the more, as I was talking about before, like the more the design knowledge is tied up like you know, locked up here in the minds of a few, um, you're really relying on those people to kind of be there and to have continuity. Um, so just when you think about like um, engineering for redundancy in any way, you think about, well, what is my fallback plan if I don't have this person or I don't have this resource? Like it, I've heard it talked about somewhat like gruesomely as like, what's the bus number for your team? Like what's the the uh, number of people that could be hit by a bus that would actually cause your product to fail because they just became unavailable. Um, so you can take that aspect of, okay, we're going to do de-risk. Um, you can also take kind of the more common just software engineering arguments around, okay, we're going to do this refactoring effectively of the design um, to make it easier to build going forward. So we're making an investment now that's going to pay an efficiency dividend kind of down the line. Um, and I think the third argument is around just kind of consistency. And just, you know, if you don't have the design system where you don't have the right set of tools to support it, um, then you are going to get creep and you're going to get divergence in the products. Um, and that will have kind of a consequence, you know, for the end user in some cases, especially if they're a user who does kind of move fluidly between multiple experiences that you're responsible for. Um, and it can also just have kind of, uh, it can lead you to some of that, uh, that cost in terms of, okay, now we've got a realign coming back together later. Um, so just kind of 
as long as you have that um, that focus and that concentration on kind of the value of a consistent experience, um, then I think you can make those kind of arguments. Were you surprised when, after launching Material Design, that companies that weren't even designing Google products or for Android kind of just started using Material Design for themselves? Was that one of the goals that you guys went after? It wasn't one of the initial goals, right. but as we started building it out, it definitely became a goal. And it's you know one of our core goals yeah. now is that you know, Material is not just for Google. It's not just Google. It's not just Android. It is, we think, a good foundational design system that can be used in a lot of different ways by a lot of different brands for a lot of different experiences. Mm. Um, but on the initial rollout, um, I mean, it's like any product launch. You, you have this idea in your head of what this thing is going to be and how it's going to be received, and you've done you know, testing in the sense of, like, we've tried it with Google products, and we've mm. maybe had a couple of early partners here and there to kind of give us a feel for it. Uh, and then you release it, and then the world gets a shot at it, and, and things surprise you. Um, I mean, I think we were, um, you know, you look at your guidelines, and you look at kind of the message you think you're putting forward, but then you see what people actually hear. Um, so we were surprised by things like, um, and there was a huge response to the floating action button. But sometimes that becomes a weakness if everybody perceives as, oh, okay, I have to have this thing. Right. Well, that's not at all the guidance. Like sometimes you have um, a scene where there is no one kind of hallmark action. So you shouldn't have it. You shouldn't like force something to be suddenly more important if it actually isn't important. Right. Uh, or we saw a lot of products adopting uh, the left navigation drawer. Um, which is something that a lot of Google products do because we have a lot of secondary, you know, ancillary functions, whether it's like uh, you might have settings or help or send feedback or account, you know, management, where other, you know, apps don't have those needs, yeah. yet they were still whining, you know, using this pattern where we were like, oh, but you really, if you'd read the guideline, and, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so that, that's hard, like, because you don't want to, you want to kind of... That's not material. <laughs> well, it, it's not even that it's not material, it's just not, it's not, um, it's, not it's not good yeah. for their product, yeah. Yeah. right? And you feel bad because you, you don't want to be, like, putting something out there that kind of misleads people into a direction that you wouldn't want them to go down. Well, right. plus their framing of what they anticipate to be material design actually abuses what material design is for people who don't know material design. And so yeah. suddenly Google's products are not seen in the best light, even though their products have nothing to do with, with yeah, I, I totally get, I totally yeah. get the argument. Um, I mean, so it happens. Yeah. Um, and, and, and you see it and you're like, okay, so what have we, what did we miss on the messaging side? Because sure. you, you always have to kind of take responsibility for what happens there. You're, you're putting all of this stuff out there. So, okay. We needed uh, to kind of cover more on this there. Uh, if we see too many products that are looking like just kind of they're Google branded, but they're not, mm. uh, we need to miss on that messaging. And maybe that means that we need to have a lot more examples that don't kind of just look like white labeled you know, Google products yeah. that we kind of, and that's something we've embraced over the last couple of years that we have this um, process that we call vignetting where we just kind of make up an artificial brand uh, that hopefully solves kind of a real use case mm. uh, and just build it in material at a, at a visual level and then try to turn that into more of the examples that we use when we talk about it. Um, so that's a way that we can kind of get closer to what especially third-party expectations or hopes for adopting material would be. In addition to designing systems that shape the products here at Google, um, you're also designing systems that shape the design culture here. Right. Yeah. Um, what first of all, like, what even attracted you to that kind of work? Because that's a whole different set of design challenges. Um, and what are some of the efforts that you're currently investing in? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm just I'm just endlessly fascinated in, in how kind of design teams operate. Um, so obviously, you guys are as well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, 24, 25 uh, <laughs> interviews in. I'm sure you've seen a fair amount of that. Yeah. Um, and I, I do think kind of one of the most important things a company can do is, is hire well. Um, uh, I, I, I talk about it with kind of people on my team, you know, not joking at all. Like hiring is the most important thing I do during a week. Um, so whether that's like interviewing uh, someone who's looking to join Google and have a career here or you know, sitting on the hiring committee that are kind of making decisions around who should we bring in and talk to or you know, who do we extend offers to. 
Um, or even things like you know, promotion committees where it's like, okay, um, who's ready to take that next level step mm-hmm. in their career? Mm-hmm. Um, it's just really important that you hire great people, that you give them great opportunities, and that you kind of recognize them when they do a great job. Great, great, great. But, great, great. but it's really important. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's like some of the things that can cause, even with a, a little bit of kind of ignoring it or sliding it, that can just kind of really trigger and kind of cascade into, into a failure within a company. Um, we've been really fortunate at Google over the last you know, several years. I feel like our reputation within the design community has, has changed a lot. And I, I have the, the pleasure of being able to like be on a phone interview with someone and talking to them and asking them like why they considered Google or mm-hmm. you know, what, and they'll say, well, you know, I read the material design guidelines, or I saw you know this product came out, and I just thought, wow, Google's thinking about design differently now. Um, so we're in a good place where we're starting to attract like a lot of, I think, really great, fresh design talent that don't. Yeah. Even though we're a, a massive company, like obviously we're like big, big company, yeah. um, that still see the opportunity to kind of bring uh, really great design. And I should say, kind of UX thinking, right? Because it's design, it's research, it's writing, it's everything, uh, and bring that to bear and feel like they can produce something really, really valuable here. You mentioned uh, the hiring committee, um, on which you have been on for almost six years. Right? Yeah. Um, some of the efforts you did there was establishing rubrics for how people in this company evaluate designers coming through, right? Yeah. Um, I'm curious what you actually look for. Like when someone comes through the door and says, hey, I want to work on Google Design, what are you looking for in that first meeting? Yeah, I mean, I'll, um, I don't want to give away the rubric, <laughs> uh, but I can it's kind like of... people are taking notes. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, I yeah. can talk a little bit about like the kind of things I look for uh, when I kind of uh, interview a designer. Um, I always kind of start with a simple question, which is, how did you get into design? Um, which I've never heard answered the same way twice. Like several hundred interviews in. Uh, people take all these radically different paths into design. And like that moment where they realize, well, A, that design is a thing, that is a career that someone could do, and B, I'd like to be that type of person. Uh, those are always kind of really interesting. So I, I want to get a sense of that person's story. Um, like what is the passion that is driving them to pursue this career? And that helps me understand a little bit too about like, I talked at the very beginning about how broad design is. Like, what's kind of the, the kind of vector they're taking through that space? Um, I think kind of communication and collaboration are essential. Um, you know, I, I don't just need somebody who can kind of produce beautiful work. I need somebody who can explain to me how they got to there. Um, I need someone who doesn't just kind of complete it and then say, my job is done. Uh, I need somebody who is willing to kind of really sit down and work closely with everyone that's needed to realize that, from like the engineer who's going to code it, to the product manager who's kind of framing it, to communications, to the end user, to support. Like, we have to kind of own the design across um, you know, every touch point that it has. Um, I look for people that are pretty egoless uh, in terms of like how they respond to ideas. Um, you know, somebody who um, presents their work and gets a question and like instantly goes defensive about it. Um, that can be okay uh, if they really like have a very principled defense for why that is. But like, I want somebody who wants to kind of listen uh, and kind of really be open to ideas. And that's really important, especially maybe even not especially at Google, but you know. A lot of our decisions get made by consensus between you know, a designer, a UX lead, an engineering lead, and a product lead. And if you're not kind of hearing the ideas that are coming from them or kind of able to kind of at least consider the feedback that you're hearing, that, that's a problem. That's, that's going to kind of slow your, your growth through this company. How do you think about uh, design exercises and in, the, in the process? Because um, you guys do on-site design exercises, or is it off-site? Uh, we do both. Do both. Uh, depending, so of some. You do both. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I like to do them on site. Yeah. Uh, I just I don't know, designers want to design, so like sure. I don't like getting somebody up out of their chair and in the interview, you know, pen in hand at the whiteboard, just gets me to see 
Like, what is this person going to be like to work with? Yeah. And I can get at communication. I can get at like ego. Uh, and I can just see like how they break down a problem. I think it's great to ask a lot of questions, but to kind of give something specific where even if it's kind of the small toy problem, you're only going to spend you know, 15 minutes on it maybe. So it has to be constrained. Um, but like, where do they go first? Like, do they, do they just jump and start drawing? Yeah. Do they ask me a few clarifying questions? Mm. Do they step back and start telling me about the user that they think this is going to be for? Uh, those are all kind of really good cues to me as to kind of what type of designer they're going to be. What, what is the biggest mistake? I know thousands of people watching this that really want to work for you. Okay? <laughs> like Google is a great brand and great company to work in if you're a designer. What is the number one mistake people make in these interviews, in these design interviews? Uh, I'm sure there's plenty of them. I'm sure. Uh-huh. But like the one that is just, it's something that should be just avoidable. And it, it's like obviously not a good thing. Like what is that thing? So we have one of the sayings that we have at Google is uh, focus on the user and all else will follow. Mm-hmm. And it always drives me nuts when someone treats themselves as the user, like right away. Mm-hmm. So I give them a design problem and they instantly jump to their experience. Right. And just like, the, 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 this, is, this is my exact set of needs and I'm going to build a product that suits me. Mm-hmm. I always look for somebody who's a, a little bit bigger, a little bit more empathetic, than that in terms of their thinking. Uh, I think the minute they move away from I, I, I sentences and start talking about, even if it's in the abstract sense, this like other ill-defined user. Um, So I think kind of being too much just, I'm gonna design for myself and my needs is the quickest mistake you can make. Well, now everyone knows. Don't, don't make that mistake. <laughs> that's fine. Get that out there. I want everybody to know this. That's, by the way, that's good advice. Not yeah, just is. interviewing here. It's just a design. That is good yes. advice for being a good designer. Exactly. I agree. I have a question around the career and promotional ladder. Right? Um, Google is a very established company, and you guys have been at this for a long time. So you, I'm sure, have figured it out. But there are many people listening who work at companies who have not. And the thing that I'm speaking about is how a designer actually progresses in their career. Yeah. Right? Um, management is oftentimes put on a lot of people who are not well suited for it. But the reason why they take that is because they feel locked in, right? It's like, well, if I don't now manage people, how else am I going to show that I've gotten better at my craft, right? Um, so first, I want to hear how Google handles that, mm-hmm. um, how you evaluate promotion for someone. And then what are some things that people who are listening can take back to their own company? Yeah. Um, Google's approach is really that kind of at the lower levels, so we use a leveling system, um, kind of there's just kind of one, one path. You know, you're not managing everyone, anyone, you're just kind of maturing within your profession. And by the way, this is true not just for design, this is for kind of other functions like engineering, et cetera. Um, at a certain point, the job ladder uh, actually splits, and there is a track that is emphasizing management and a track that is emphasizing your individual contributions. Um, and people kind of, after that split in the higher levels, you can kind of move between them as well. Um, but I think something that Google gets really right is to recognize that not everyone's kind of career path should be kind of based around how many reports do I have? How many people am I managing? So we have kind of principal uh, engineers and designers who have kind of gone to the very top levels of the company who may manage no one. You know, they, are, they just know, okay, the thing that I love that makes me great at my job is this concentration on craft, on building, on kind of being in the guts of it, making it happen. Um, I think it's good to have, give people like the flexibility to experience like what it's like to manage, to mentor. Um, I think it's a lot easier to kind of know which way you're going to branch um, between those, those two uh, when you had some exposure to it. Um, so Google's really good about kind of giving those opportunities. Um, and I think the key thing is to remember that influence isn't just, you know, you know how many people are on my team. Um, it can be how powerful are the ideas that I'm building yeah. or how um, enabling is this technology that I'm working on. Um, so I think 
we do a pretty good job about being explicit that you know the only path to that is not via management. Um, if you're okay, I'd like to go to community mm -hmm. questions. Yeah. Okay. Well, we reached out to the community and we asked them to give us a set of questions that they feel is important to them. Um, we have five questions. I think, yes, we have five questions that we want to go through with you, okay? Okay. Um, we're going through these with every guest. So we'll do this. Take your time. You can, do, you can answer however you like. All right, all right. Rap, rapid fire okay. or not, we have time. Good. Okay. Is this, no, it's not lightning round? It's not lightning. Well, <laughs> you, you, it, it could be lightning it's round. It's like answer it in one word. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, you can be thoughtful and analytical as you have. Been. We'll see. Okay. <laughs> Um, how should designers explain the role of design to people in their companies? Um, I don't have to do that that much at Google, but um, I think the simplest way that you talk about it is, I don't know, you, I think about it as problem solving and problem understanding are kind of the two essential things that design does. I think problem solving is what we hear a lot. I'm just like, okay, there's a challenge. Figure out how this is going to work for this person to satisfy it. Yeah. But more often than not, like the challenge that you begin isn't the real challenge yet. Uh, so that kind of understanding and framing the problem is the important part. Um, so for me, it boils down to like the very. I think I can think back to my first day of class studying human-computer interaction. Yeah, back uh, in the day. Back in the day, <laughs> uh, and like the five things we stress there are: okay, there's a user. That user has a context. They have a set of tasks they're trying to achieve in order to fulfill a goal, yeah. and they have some set of tools that they're, they're going to use to realize that. And what we as designers are, we're, we're trying to do an understanding of the first four to figure out what to give them as the fifth. Mm. Um, so we want to know the users, where are they, what are they trying to do, and why are they trying to do it, and then we can try to figure out what to package for them. So this was years ago. Do you still believe in the, those five? It still holds very, very easily. So it's yes. a good universal design principle. Yes. Okay, good. The second question is, how is the design team, we can focus specifically on material, organized here at Google? Um, there's definitely different forms at Google. Um, so material design, I kind of talked about the um, uh, way we divide across the initiatives earlier. Um, within the team, the focus is on cross-functional. Um, so we'll kind of put different subsets of people together on individual projects. Um, we like the idea that people have kind of mobility, like kind of even within the material team, where they can work on different parts of the system, because uh, that raises kind of their overall knowledge of, of every, everything that we're doing. Um, and that's true within Google as well. So there's a lot of um, um, facility for a designer who's been in one problem space to kind of kind of put a hand up and say, I'd actually like to think about something different. Um, so we can actually look at like all the job opportunities internally, in some cases even before they're visible externally, uh, and kind of kind of shop within the company uh, to kind of change up. So the next question is, uh, when you're the only designer in a company, how do you convince the leaders of that company of the value that design can bring them? Yeah, um, I think I think when you're trying to convince like anyone of anything. <laughs> You, you want to start by understanding like what motivates them. So if it's the leaders for the company, um, like hopefully they're focused on like what's the business return for the company? Uh, how are we going to build up like a, 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 a scalable and sustainable audience? A set of kind of we would call them users, but to them they're maybe consumers. Yeah. Um, and you want to kind of kind of engage a dialogue that starts from their framing of of the problem. Um, I think. Like a, a classic mistake people make is to kind of talk from their point of view immediately, mm. where I think you want to start from someone else's point of view and kind of draw them to yours more gradually. Mm. Um, so I think you, you talk about, um, you know, we want to have a, a product that, you know, has a really high uh, rating on uh, whatever service that someone might download this from or access this from, because that's uh, a very important cue for them as to whether or not they should buy this product, engage mm. with this service. Um, so if there's agreement on that, then you can talk about, well, here's user experience, here's how we get to satisfied users by kind of understanding what they expect from us and how we can meet those needs. The next question is, how should designers measure and present the results of their work in their business? It's, this is something I honestly still struggle with a lot. It's really challenging to kind of know um, 
especially at a specific individual level, like what my contribution to the like success of this product was. I mean, I don't know. We work on product teams that are like they may have like dozens or even you know, hundreds of people on them. Um, and everybody can point to like the hockey stick chart and be like, well, I mean, come on, this was huge. This was a massive success. <laughs> but how do you like connect yourself yeah. to that? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of the way you do that is, and, and maybe I'm biasing towards like the way that we do um, like performance reviews at Google, but a lot of that is on like, how do your peers see you as part of this success? Uh, and I think when you ask someone for like a peer review and they comment ab- about a project, I think a lot of times the lens that they're using to frame it is, how did this, how did this person help me with my goals for this project? Um, so I think you can look at metrics that are you know, page views or downloads or user satisfaction scores. You can use metrics around kind of, if I worked on this feature, this feature got used this many times. Um, that's a little bit more tenuous to me because it's like, well, but how did that contribute to like, usage is one thing and views are one thing, but did this really like help the user? Did it contribute? Um, but if you can kind of point to users kind of continuing to return to the product, um, it's really hard. Because like some products don't actually even want like the users to keep coming back. Right? You can build a great experience that is a great experience like three times a year if that's what the users' needs for it are. Um, so. I think just my advice uh, to people would be um, lean on your peers to kind of give, tell, tell the story of what you've done. Um, use evidence when you can, but don't kind of try to make the, your connection to that evidence as specific as you can. Um, and you know, ping me when you figure out what other ways of doing this are, because it's really hard. It is really a, a challenge. Well, you know, Rich, there are 24 other people that that also have an answer to this that you can listen to and see if you can learn anything from that. Sounds great. <laughs> okay, so we're on our final question. As the purpose of design continues to evolve, what are some roles or methodologies that you think might emerge over the next five years? Yeah, um, I will say that kind of the most immediate need that I see kind of not enough um, skill in for a lot of design candidates I'm looking at is motion design. Mm. Motion design is just essential going forward. We're, in, we're going to be leaving behind this world of just kind of flat, static, here's my scene, I do everything, I commit, and I go to the next scene, and I do the next set of steps. Like, we're, we will happily be leaving that behind, and I think we're going to be relying a lot on using you know, animation and motion within an interface to tell a story without words, to kind of communicate to the user what's happening kind of as we go through this set of flows. Um, so I think kind of gaining fluency there is great. That's a skill that we like can't hire enough of, honestly. Um, I'd encourage designers, as always, to like connect yourselves to research as much as you can. Like that's the best partnership you're ever going to have. Like be joined at the hip with your researcher. Understand their methods, how they approach design of their experiments, uh, and how you can have a really successful partnership there. Um, and I think voice is also very exciting. You know, voice makes you think about interface in a completely different way. Um, that I think leads naturally into thinking about interfaces or thinking about uh, experiences that aren't these kind of fully structured apps, yeah. but more of these kind of targeted, I don't want to call them micro-engagements, but they are like tighter interactions than I need to go and do everything that's possible within yeah. this service. Well, I think that's a good place to end. Yes, it is. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Hey, you made it to the end. Congratulations. Thanks for watching the episode. I really, really hope you liked it. If you did like it, please leave us a review on the iTunes store. And by the way, if you have any questions that came up because of the content that, that we covered with our guests, go on YouTube, go on Twitter. You can tweet us. You can leave us a comment. We'll get back to you. We'll help you as much as possible. At High Res Podcast. That's the the screen name or the handle for Twitter, for Instagram, for Facebook. Find us, talk to us. We want to converse with you. Uh, We're not going to leave here, by the way, without also thanking our friends at Searle Video. They've been an amazing partner on this entire project. So Searle Video is a creative studio based out of Portland, Oregon. They've helped creative communities tell stories for 
over 10 years. They've done advertisements, behind the scene footage, um, and documentaries for companies like Google, Slack, XOXO Festival, Adobe, Intel. They're incredible. They've traveled with us through the entire country documenting these stories with our guests. That's incredible. Thank you so much, Searle. Listen, if you're a startup looking to elevate your product, if you're a big company looking to humanize your brand, if you're someone in the creative community who just wants to tell a story, you've got to check out the team at Searle Video. It's searlevideo.com, S-E-A-R-L-E, video.com. Check out our friends at Searle. Thank you so much, guys. You guys have been incredible on this project.